0: Editor in chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Good day, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Hosted by Dara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. If you pull up one of our podcasts from a few weeks ago, you will be able to hear Nabil matar and Gerald McLean discuss the cultural exchange between the Islamic Orient and, well, England. Ideas and things, non-material culture and material culture, if you want to go all academic going on from there horses were one of the major objects of trade theft and diplomacy between the East and England and horses are what we are going to be discussing today our guest today is Donna Landry professor of English at the University of Kent and she's going to be talking to us about her book Noble Brutes, How Eastern Horses Transformed
1: English Culture. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you for doing this for the New Network. Um, it's a very upbeat book and uh, I'm sure it's going to really appeal to our listeners. Um, I don't think we have had a book like this before. So, could you actually tell us something about yourself and, you know, your search carrier
2: and how you came to write the book? Well, I've been interested in horses for a long time, and as I began to see more uh, more comparative views of horses in the United States, horses in Britain, and then horses in the Middle East as I began to travel, I began to see that, in fact, the other species, such as horses, really teach humans many things. And that horses are as different amongst themselves. They have their own communities, they have their own groups, they have their own national identities, if you like. And that I I began to see that this was really something that was very important in the long 18th century. In particularly in, in England and then also in the New World, in America. Because whatever happens in Britain makes its way to America in the 17th and 18th centuries.
1: <laughs> um, so it says here that uh, you're actually, well you have a degree in English in the sense that uh, you're a little at like, so house from the shift into history. Yes,
2: well, um, those of us who were trained as um, new historicists, or feminist new historicists, and were doing literary history from that point of view, discovered that there was really no barrier between a literary text and other kinds of writing, or really between a literary text and other kinds of texts which might not be written at all, that might be events, that might be paintings, that might be other kinds of cultural phenomena. So it, it soon became clear that there was no really firm boundary between the discipline of cultural history and the discipline of literary history as the historicists had begun to define it. And then once there were actual historians who were prepared to listen to us and to exchange ideas and methodologies, then it became possible to publish in a history series as well.
1: So, I mean, given your multidisciplinary background, I mean, how did you go about, you know, researching for this book? I mean, what was the main focus. <laughs> and, uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> it took me into manuscript archives that I wouldn't otherwise have ventured into. And it took me to what used to be called the Public Record Office in Britain that is now called the National Archives. <laughs> and I tried to remind myself that one should be able to read any document as a text carefully in its context, but also looking for the things that are not said as well as the things that are. And that's the kind of thing that drives the positivist historians crazy. They don't like that idea that you might be looking for things that are not said or that you might be looking for text in its weave of textuality. But some historians are much more open to this. But uh, when you're looking at things like
1: the National Archives, the P.R.O., the British Library, I mean it's like primarily, you know, government documents, it's official correspondence and this, I mean, does tend to something more social, something more commercial. So, I mean, how was it like, you know, this kind of information from maybe documents for which, it's not the primary purpose?
2: Um... How does one extract information? I think it's, a, it's like detective work of any sort. You have to keep trying to keep the whole picture together in your mind at the same time as you want to do a particular microscopic piece of information. And for example, when I was trying to construct the story of the Bloody Shoals of Arabians, I found myself using all kinds of different sources of information and all sorts of levels of narration, if you want. Um, if the horse had not been seen as a commodity, we would not have had such a rich record of his existence. If the horse had not been seen as actually something much more than a luxury good, something more than a commodity, we would not have had such a rich record of his existence. If, if the horse had not been seen as such a beautiful object, so that uh, John Wilson painted him over and over again, we would not have so much evidence of his existence in the very nice men So that is a good instance of the use, the possible use of all kinds of different documents. Um, in order to to bring together the sort of thing that uh, Arjuna Paterai talks about as a a social uh, biography of a commodity. But in this case, I think um, fellow species are not commodities, they are also agents and animated beings um, as well. But of course they're treated as commodities when they're traded in, (laughs) when they are exchanged in that way. But then humans can be in the slave trade of course treated in more or less the same way.
1: So I mean the bloody shoulder Arab I mean it you know, was representative representative of, you know, the entire trading hospital at the time. Could you just, you know, summarize the story
2: for our listeners? Well, there was um a family called the Harleys. Robert Harley was one a, well, of Queen Anne's ministers, and uh, what is his, his younger brother? As the younger brothers do, had to go out and make his fortune. So he was sent out to Aleppo to work for the Levant Company. And while he was out there, his family kept saying, We've heard there are these sort of horses out there. Do you think you could send us some? We'd like to know what these are like. So he began to look for horses to send back to his family. And eventually he found this particular grey stallion. And he was not able to ship him for some years because of war, because of uh, prohibitions on shipping horses out of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Eventually he got him a passage to England. And the horse was taken to be um, an extraordinary instance of the desert Arab bred by the Bedouin. I think the strain would now be called Teglawi uh, Jedram, still being bred in Syria. And he was painted by Watton, who was developing the idea of the, equest- of the equine portrait at Numa. So, uh, not only was there one portrait painted for, uh, for Nathaniel Harley, Robert Harley's, uh, son, who is, was um, the, going to become the next All-Arts that is going so to inherit uh, a huge fortune, and he married a woman who had a huge fortune. So, not only was that portrait painted for the Harley, but Watson used the Blood and Arabian as his, his ideal and painted at least six versions which other people purchased. So, he became sort of an iconic figure for the new Arabian who had come from the desert, come from the territory of the former Ottoman Empire. Um, he then, um, after he sold on from the Harley family to uh, go and be at studied pet work. He's then written about uh, in a letter by um, another writer uh, who speaks of him as a winner. As in, one of the features from Book 4 of Jonathan Stewart's Fellow's Travels. Now, Jonathan Stewart was a friend of the Holy as was Alexander Pope. So, of course, the Bloody Shoulders of Arabian fell in with, um, a group of very literary, rather disaffected writers, Pope, which identified with Stuart very much against the Hanoverian establishment which came into being the death of Queen Anne in 1714. We then have George, 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 the Hanoverian. So these writers, in a way, uh, find that the gathering uh, around the sort of remains of the Harley uh, establishment, the remains of Queen Anne's reign, uh, um, give them a certain purchase, an um, intellectual critique of the way British society is going. And um, as uh, Bramston, James Bramston, writes before, uh, is so intelligent that he really is a manifestation of one of Jonathan's books, Finan, and uh, just as a, a, a sort of outstanding as, as, a, as a critic who has cast and shed light on the development of British really imperialism and colonialism and Britain's rise to fame and fortune in the world, but at what expense? at what cost? you know, Alexander Pope was once to write poem about the gun theme a dog that come to take over English culture is Britain. So it's interesting how a particular horse can um, make his way into so many sorts of documents and so many representations and be a figure on the one hand for Britain's rise in mercantilism, Britain's economic rise, Britain's desire to have an empire, But at the cost of... Uh, lots of disaffection to those who think differently because they're jacobites, because they're It's interesting that he happens to have fallen in with that crowd um, of of the disaffected, so it becomes a sort of figure in in Swiss satire. I would say Jonathan Swift actually wrote before the story of the women, these rational horses who are far more intelligent than the human characters who are mere yahoos. That Swift was actually inspired to construct women in the way he did by these Eastern horses particularly with what he showed in the radio. We used to see a so much more beautiful, athletic and intelligent than anybody
1: else. But, uh, obviously, you know, it wasn't just horses. I mean, like, your colleague Gerald McLean, he's pointed out in his book, I mean, there was a fascination with all things
2: Eastern, you know. Is yes. there one thing that, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, as Gerald as McLean has said, you know, imperial envy was very much, you know, on the side of the West, envying the Eastern Empires, the Muslim Empire, the Safavid Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and thinking, they have empires. We haven't got one yet. How to get one? There's a, a book that came out recently, Alison Games's book, Web of Empires, which many people are reading. She says that in the early days, in the late 16th century and the 17th century, when Britons went abroad, when they went east, they had to be cosmopolitan. She uses the word cosmopolitan. She never defines it, but it has to do with being open. It has to do with learning from the other. It has to do with adjusting your manners and your way of living to fit in with the society which you find yourself. And she says, well... Without going into any details, that Britain seemed to learn this first in the cities of the eastern Mediterranean. Now, if that's the late 16th and early 17th century, and she's talking about the or Cairo or Constantinople Istanbul or Damascus, then these are all Ottoman cities at this time. A bit later, there will be far more investment in India. But what she should be saying is that Britain's learned how to be cosmopolitan. First, <laughs> by learning from <laughs> those who already had empire, you know, the Ottomans, the Safavids, of of the movies, so, <laughs> She never goes that far. <laughs> in the first, in, in the first instance, there was no much further east than there was in western Europe. <laughs> and so,
1: how does uh, William Booth fit into the scheme of things? William Moorcroft, uh, which I don't think he mentioned in your book, but uh, he was just uh, East India Company servant, and I think he was sent into Central Asia to look for her too, But there was these allegations that he was really a spy.
2: Right. Um. Yes. Well, you didn't. Try. I suppose he didn't fit in. He didn't fit into the narrative so much because um, I kept being told, you know, by the publisher, I had to keep keep things out. It has to be. Very clear story. <laughs> so, it, a lot of it turned on the development of the thoroughbred in in Britain. What were the strains of, of forced horse genetics that went to make the thoroughbreds. And I think, if you like, his his is a, a sort of centripetal trajectory, going out into Central Asia in search of rather than bringing them back in order to create a gene pool within England, particularly, but also Ireland, elsewhere in the British Isles, that would mean after 1750, there was no great drive to import horses from the East any longer. There was an attempt, in fact, by the 1790s, to close the suburb and say, this is it, now we have a pure English thoroughbred, <laughs> an English kuhayla.
1: So, you know, was there any effort to actually export? You know, not English belt but English shire horses. I mean, I remember reading that a five of them were sent out to Angus in the 1830s. So was there something like more to that, or was, there just, was that just a one-off incident? I mean, like, um, the people in the East, did
2: they want English horses? I think it was still quite unusual. I mean, when, you know, when the, um, you know, when the British the Army, cavalry and things were... Were where they were as they were colonizing. They kept importing horses, and they would, in fact, bring in cavalry horses from Britain and from Northern Europe. But they never thrived. They didn't do so well. They're not really suited to the climate. That's one reason why, you know, Britain kept importing and import back into. India um, now, of course, you know there are uh, breeds that have been developed much more along indigenous lines who thrive, the Marwari, etc. You know. Now, India has iconic horses in addition to the Arabian, which was um, in in the early modern period a very desirable breed anywhere. Um, you know, no no one would quibble with that. But, um, you know, India now has its own, its own famous creed. So I would say that the bringing in of European horses is still really very, in, very unusual, um, symbolic of something, and to do with gift exchange and the status of having something novel, rather than um, much in the way of usefulness. I think, actually, the Australian Brumby turned out to be a very, very useful world export. <laughs> um, but that, again, was something developed in colonial space out of much uh, mongrel mixing <laughs> you know, but obviously
1: the English character is like you know at the center of the book and it wasn't just you know there was a lot of like know, issues of cultural identity you know that like, grew up around it so could you just you know maybe summarize some of them often? I mean you've a lot of prose in the book you know
2: all these poems and kind of things but maybe something natural well, yes, the, the English thoroughbred, as I say, you know, was, um, there was a lot of forgetting that went on instantly about the origins of the horse, and there's still a debate in circles today, amongst, uh, amongst scholars, but also amongst racing people, as to how much native blood, Or, how much native genetic material, as in native to the British Isles, went into the making of the thoroughbred? There are those who say it was entirely the imported Easter's blood being crossed and crossed and crossed. Central Asian horses, Arabian horses, and North African or Barb horses, all mixed together. Then there are those who say, ah, but there were native British racing ponies, there were Galway racers, there were Irish hobbies. And that these were the sort of secret ingredients. So, the actual mixture, we don't know. There's now DNA research that may help sort this out in more detail. There is some evidence that uh, European genetics did contribute to this program. But what was interesting was that because of the uh, dependence upon imported Eastern horses, you would have thought that there would have been a bit more admiring acknowledgement of the eastern source and yet that's instantly forgotten and the horses are called English products even now in Turkey thoroughbreds uh, who are there as racehorses because there's a huge uh, their racing industry globally are called English they're just you know English as opposed to something else so, this was deliberately, if you like, forgotten. It's it, um, not unlike every Said's paradigm of Orientalism, the way things get expropriated and incorporated, and then forgotten in terms of where they come from, or what sort of debt the West might owe to the East. You know, it's always the West, uh, From uh, after 1798, the Bonaparte invasion of Egypt, it's always the West in a position of superiority Judgment, knowledge gathering, pronouncement, etc. So, similarly, the English thoroughbred then became something that could be re exported globally as a sign of English superiority, cultural superiority, agricultural, technological superiority, etc.
1: So, uh, what about the relationship of, you know, the English thoroughbred and fox hunting? I mean, there's a section in the book where you mention that the whole fox hunting thing was actually considered developing an English style of riding. I think so, how does the thoroughbred fit into it?
2: Well, the thoroughbred was so much faster than any horses that uh, people in, in Northern Europe have had access to. And interestingly, in order to be able to gallop and jump at speed... It was necessary to begin to ride in a way that was far more like the step horsemen of Central Asia or Northern India, that free forward movement with shorter stirrups, taking up the stirrup leathers and riding far more forward uh, in order to go with the movement rather than trying to control the horse in a collected way, controlling every movement, which was the European style of riding. So you could say that the thoroughbreds, having ideas about free forward movement, <laughs> taught the riders that they needed to ride differently and also needed to give the horse a certain freedom to negotiate terrain, to choose to jump this in this fashion rather than in that fashion. So there is if you like this um, increased pace this increased pace which leads to changes in the landscape as well wanting to make things a bit more uh, exciting in this, this sort of racing mode. The breeding of hounds changes as well. I mean, fox hunting is really not so much about the horses as it is about the hounds. And uh, in order to pursue the fox, the fox hounds were bred to be fast, because the fox was a much quicker uh, object of pursuit than the hare, uh, a more uh, long-distance at speed pursuit than the pursuit of deer. So, these things, if you like, are, are in a, a sort of you know, network of combinations the, within the context of the agricultural revolution in which farmers, landowners, are trying to improve. Not only are they improving productivity by changing their farming techniques, but they're improving, if you like, pleasure and the excitement they gather in their leisure time through the development of uh, a faster pace, a more challenging uh, object of pursuit of and then the various kinds of, of, if you like, technology or if you like partners in this activity, thought town and for the uh, Red horses. It's, it's um, it, in, in, term, in, in Deleuze and Guattari's terms, you know, this is a machine, if you like, for the pleasure of free forward movement. And it's also interesting that this is the, the long eighteenth century is a period in which liberty is a crucial term in political discourse and political debate. Is Britain the freest nation on earth? Do so we have liberty as one of our rights? Unlike the rest of the world, which is, you know, full of oppression <laughs> and absolutism <laughs> and these other nasty things. However hypocritical that may be, it is very much part of the rhetoric that is then involved in exporting to British India, you know, liberty and the rule of law.
1: Also, <laughs> just talk about, you know, the difference use of horses, I mean, in terms of hunting and in terms of actually, you know, playing old-fashioned horse racing, I mean, what are the differences in approach? I'm, I'm sorry? Did you uh, say that? Uh, I just wondering about the differences in the way horses came to be used. I mean, in hunting on the one hand, and on the other hand, you just had, you a know, horse racing, like whether it was flat racing or jump racing. So, were there any significant differences?
2: The difference? Well, um, the, um, as I say, the, the pace, the, the question of hunting is becoming far more like light racing, if you like. Um, certainly happens. The eventually the very long distance racing and multiple heat um, changes. What we have now in in flat racing globally are much shorter distances. In the 18th century, horses raced for four mile heats, sometimes four heats. So just just think of the miles being covered. Um, therefore, there was far more emphasis on endurance, or what's called bottom, staying power, than on the very quick sprinting. Although the quick sprinting, actually, was something that took off in America, in the American colonies, um, perhaps earlier than it did in Britain, partly because there were no uh, wonderful, undulating turf gallops. As there were in Britain, Newmarket had, and other areas of England had downlands for um, undulating turf racecourses in, um, in the United, what became the United States and the American colonies. The forests had to be cut down in order to make a track, in order to make a passage. So there were these, um, if you like, uh, we would think of them as fire breaks in a forest cell. And that's where the racing happened. And so, shorter distances, sometimes on a straight line, became popular in the American colonies before they did in Britain. So, if you like, the movement of of racing is for things to adopt much, much shorter, more focused, more intense, shorter distances, greater speed, and more about crowd pleasing. It's possible to see the whole of, of a race in the modern world in ways in the old days you really needed to sort of ride alongside in in order to be able to see what was going on on the whole course. So it was a bit more like a cross country event in, in the Olympics um, than it is like a modern race. Oh, yeah, uh, that
1: actually brings me to an interesting comment where uh, I think somebody mentioned in the book that he doesn't think that, you know, Oxford don't really know how to write because they just use the horrible sort of coach, you know, traveling between London and Oxford, and as opposed to, well, I don't know, professional
2: housekeepers. I mean, what do you make of that? <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. It's quite right. <laughs> funny. Well, it's, there's, you know, two things here. I mean, the, the Duke of Newcastle, with his notions of riding properly, what we would now call dressage, riding as an art form, as opposed to riding uh, as a means of transport. <laughs> but that doesn't count as riding at all. Um, you know, in, again, in the modern world, in one sense, the Duke of Newcastle lost lost out, because obviously far more people globally ride to ride today, and think of themselves as riding, when they're really just riding for pleasure, they're going from A to B, but in another sense um, in the sort of more elite circles globally whether it's, you know, east or west he's, he's won out his views carry more weight now, because, because there are fewer places to ride out in open countryside, Far more people go round and round and round the riding school now and do what they think is dressage <laughs> in the way that Newcastle would not have wanted, but they think that that's what they do. So the more riding becomes a, an indoor sport, or the more it becomes uh, something to be pursued according to a rule book and according to riding to uh, perform a dressage test. The more it is like a, if you like, a, a kind of parodic version of what it was that was part of Cavendish's theory and, and other, of course, other European riding masters in the 17th and 18th century who wrote those great treatises about uh, horsemanship as an art. A science, but more of an art. <laughs>
1: So, the thoroughbred, for instance, I mean, just have been used at the higher levels of, uh, well, the writing profession, if you can call it that, well, not profession, but, I mean, an average person never would really have used a kind of horse, they just have made those.
2: Well, an average person, this is, the thoroughbred, um, because very sensitive, intelligent, and also, at least in, in Britain, particularly bread for one thing, one thing in mind, feed bread like for racing before everything else is a lot to handle for many people too too hot to handle for many people. <laughs> and so something that's seen as a little bit um, more phlegmatic, a little bit cooler, a little bit you know more mixed with cold blood is seen as a much safer option. So it's all a question of, of, of who you are, what you want to do, and how willing you are to try to understand, you know, the particular, horse the particular horse's desires and needs, really. If you want to be in charge and have a horse that's very unproblematic, then the thoroughbred requires far more uh, sensitivity, attention, and also skills, you know, skills, techniques to, to deal with. Um, other horses are much easier. So that's how it is, you know, it depends on who you are, where you are, and what you want. If you want to do certain kinds of things, then the thoroughbred, or again, some of the horses who contributed to the thoroughbred, the Arabian, the Turkman, which we would now say Anakotechis, uh, the bad horses of, of North Africa um, may still be more to your taste if you want um, a horse who, as it were, is always thinking, thinking ahead, has ideas, maybe is second-guessing you, maybe is, as they, the English say, taking your temperature, <laughs> and maybe finding you want it, you know, <laughs> finding you're not really up to the job. <laughs>
1: So, uh, what about, technically, um, in technical developments, I mean, was there any Eastern influences in terms of, you know, well, saddles and other riding equipment?
2: Oh, equipment, yes, um, yes, certainly. If, if you've seen oh, representations of um, of European rulers, for example, of the era of Henry VIII, or even later in the 16th century, yes. saddles are. Uh, still made in a way that will keep the knight on horseback, you know, in the full suit of armor with his lance, etc. By the later 17th century, we find saddles that are very much like the modern saddle now, like, uh, more like a racing saddle, The so-called you know, English saddle, which I've seen, you know, is very popular in, in India. As well. Um, and these are much more likely equipment that's coming from the east, coming from the steppe, um, where often people go rode bareback, but then with stirrups, it was actually better um, for balancing and, and for being able to shoot if you're an archer. So um, certainly the, the influence on a saddle for three forward movement, a saddle for Um, being able to go fast across country, following the horse's movement rather than sitting down, back firmly fixed in your suit of armor. All of that is coming, really coming, coming from the east. And also the uh, snapper bit, as opposed to the curb bit, seems to have both eastern and Celtic uh, origins the Snapple bit, which again is a bit for, not for collections, but for free-forward movement. Is that help? Yeah, I
1: was just wondering one more thing is that the development or the evolution of the English thoroughbred. I mean that, that started occurring around a time when, you know, armed warfare, like well armed Kavazi warfare, was, you know, so that they died out in England
2: around that time. Um, do you see any like a connection over there? Uh, well, I'm sorry. When, when do you mean thinking around that time? Um, you know, the cavalry goes on. You know, right up until the Second World War, although it's, it, it's a bit of a symbolic anachronism. Yes. But um, it's said, you know, that the cavalry ceases to be quite so strategically important, even in the 18th century. Although it goes on being used right through, you know, the 19th century, as we say, certainly in the First world War it was still being used, but was also um, increasingly uh, obsolescent, shall we say. Um, the, the, the change about in saddles seems to happen in the 17th century. By the later 17th century we have still some existing, let' say saddles that are much more like a modern English saddle, unlike those continental. So
1: and what is the role of the, well, the role of the horse in, well, the English army, I mean, what are the difference, I mean, in terms of how horses are bred and souls you know, for military purposes as
2: mm-hmm. opposed to civilian purposes? Uh, well, the uh, cavalry become differentiated by the later 18th century, you've got the heavy horse and the light horse. know, so you've got dragoon and you've got the light horse. So the, the most maneuverable, uh, light lightest horses are the most like the eastern horses. And the chargers of the, the heavy horse um, contain far more of that northern European blood. You wanted to have Shire horses in the picture, you know, they're still there contributing in terms of the, the heavy horse cavalry, and also gunners horses, the horses who pull, who pull the guns um, for the artillery. So there's that sort of differentiation. Um, by you know, by the, the later eighteenth, early nineteenth century, um, the civilian the civilian world is far more well. The civilian world is far more mixed. Um, there's just a, a huge spectrum, really, of horses, you know, from ponies to the huge draft animals, your know, shires and Suffolk punches and things that are being developed for um, you know for working purposes. So, um, the, as I say, within the cavalry, you've got these sort of two models: the, the, the slightly heavier charger model, and the um, very uh, the light horse, who, as I say, are far more um, uh, with, with a lot, a lot more racing blood, if you like, or during blood. Um, and then uh, another thing that was said actually about about horses in the British Isles of the 18th century is that all of them, even the cart the horses, even the shires and other sort of punches, Clydesdales, that all of them had been improved in some sense by an infusion of Eastern blood. This is said by writers on horse uh, reading in the 18th century and in the 19th century. How much of this is wishful thinking? I don't know, but <laughs> this is how it seems to the, the farming writers of the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you did mention that, the difficulty of interpreting documents and uh, what people actually want to say.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, DNA, which may tell us a bit more. There's now some, you know, lots of em- uh, evidence that mitochondrial DNA that passes through the damned line, that passes through the female line, may reveal more about um, the actual genetic composition even as horses who've been dead for 300 years, um, there's been some DNA research on the um, uh, Eclipse. It was a very famous racehorse in his time, probably the most one of the most successful racehorses of all time. So, oh, there's four of that. just
1: sure. <laughs> uh, how much technical knowledge went into the writing of this book. Ooh,
2: technical knowledge, knowledge, <laughs> um, I some of the reviews of the book that have pleased me most were reviews that this book could only have been written by a horse person, by someone who actually had some knowledge of riding and working with them, and that pleased me a great deal. The science material I've had to do a lot of work on. Um, I've had to do lots. Reading, I've been in touch with the MacDonald Institute for Archaeozoology at Cambridge, where they're doing DNA research on uh, ancient horse breeds and what, uh, you know, what what gene pools still exist for them today. The and also, some of the uh, archaeozoologists, um, Sandra Botanyi, who did a lot of work on, again, Central Asia. Um, and uh, depth uh, remains and how, how to interpret these. So I'm afraid the book was years in the making. <laughs> but the technical knowledge that I, I'm most pleased about, I suppose, it's been recognized is that I, I do think one should have not just virtual and not just um, academic or intellectual relations to those subjects, but try to be as, as immersed and as hands-on as possible. And that you know, real, real life experience is still very important. Some of us are interested in historical reenactment as a means of doing historical research. And in some sense, in order to, to do research on equestrianism and horsemanship in the ages, it helps to have some practical knowledge of what people who are still involved in horse breeding, or fox hunting, or racing, or just riding across country. Uh, do but what? What's their knowledge? What What are their techniques? What terminology do they use? How do they interpret what they do? Because often, knowing something about those practices today, one then can interpret the document in a more illuminating way, a more, um, a more informed way than without that knowledge. It may not be a perfect fit. Obviously, things change. Practices change. But there's often a connection. And that's one of the things that attempts at reenactment of the past can, can help. And we obviously have to have today's experts in order to be able to, to try to connect with reenacting with these, the practices of experts from 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Does
1: well, that mean you are a also- host
2: <laughs> I hope so. I <laughs> hope yes, I can be countable. You know, I it was the thing I loved most when I was when I was a child, I was able to take riding lessons and of all the things that one could do, that was the thing that I loved most. Uh, I would try, you know, <clears> to <throat> keep some sort of memento of every time I I've been riding, even if it was just being able to, to just catch a whiff of the horse, you know. <laughs> you know, you must wash your hands, it must be very clean in America. But I will just try to keep somewhere where I could sort of remind myself of the wonderful scent of the horse.
1: <laughs> well I tried riding, I mean I tried riding this entire time, but you know, I
2: fell off and that was the end of it. Oh no, that was so oh. unfortunate. <laughs> if you fell off and you didn't want to get on again they say you have to fall at least 69 times before you are a rider <laughs> but learning to, there's an art learning to fall without damaging yourself and without damaging your nerves and you know that that's not everyone can do this many people have your experience <laughs>
1: No, no, I uh, read this, uh, there's an account, I think, where Charles Alan uh, Surabhi, he read some of his work, uh, he did this book on, I think, the Indian prince Stakes, and there was an account of how the kids were about to ride, and they were just putting a bed back on the horse, and it was like, if you fall off, okay, you just come back and scrub yourself off, and if you stay on, you become a rider. So they literally had nothing, I mean, so literally no equipment at all, like no saddles, no stirrups, you no know, just It was very interesting but um, in fact, uh, where do you see you're
2: continuing with this uh, research <laughs> oh I'm continuing with research at the moment I'm involved with Gerald McClain in the Evliya Chalabi project mm-hmm. um, we're trying to reenact the journeys of an Ottoman traveler of the 17th century and because he was traveling in the 17th century he was of course traveling on horseback and he does write a lot about the horses, the horses he traveled with. His, one of his lines is, first the companion, then the road. And amongst the companions are his many, often they are Arabian, Suhela, horses. So, um, through retracing his travels, we're trying to discover something of a vanished Ottoman world, but it also means connecting today with horse people in Anatolia and elsewhere. We're we're hoping if the political situation changes in Syria that we will be doing some some research there because that still is a very active horse culture, particularly amongst the Bedouins, um, you know, in, in those sort of desert areas. So that's a project in which practical riding research and making expeditions goes with doing archival work studying Evliya's texts, working on translations from the Ottoman into English, and trying to, to figure out what's going on. Uh, if you've not heard of him, he wrote a 10-volume manuscript. He traveled for 50 years throughout the Ottoman Empire and beyond. Unfortunately, he never made it as far as India. He only went as far as, as Persia. He went as far as Greece, but also to Russia, to the Sea of Azov, and to the Sudan. He had a map of the Nile drawn up which was in the Vatican Library. So he's a very important and interesting figure for world literature. He was a dervish, a Sufi, a bawdy writer, a jokester, a punster. Um, he's been compared with Shakespeare, the <laughs> sort of Ottoman Shakespeare in terms of the richness of his language. Um, but he was also a writer. So we're coming at it that way, and encouraging other people to think of making journeys along cultural routes in order to connect with rural people today. You know, India has huge rural, um, you know, population still, and actually in Turkey today, there's still you know, a very big uh, rural population, away from cities, leading their own lives in a far more ecologically sustainable way than those of us who live in the industrialized west or, you know, in the developed world or in in cities.
1: In urban areas, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm (laughs) ecologically sustainable, but... uh... One final question, um it's uh, obviously this relationship between hospitals and you know, the countryside and English nation. I mean that's probably been the subject of caricature. I mean well it is yet. So I mean how do you think it has you know, evolved or changed and I mean how do you see it where do you see it going?
2: Well, unfortunately the image of um of toffs on horseback, you know <laughs> of the elite of the upper class, you know. Um, the, the, the Tory squire, right, is always associated with horses. But I want to say horses are as important for the working class as well, historically, and in rural areas today still. Um, you know, horses are, are Democrats in that sense. You know, they, they don't really um, have the same kinds of, of, of class hierarchies in mind. And, you know, Irish tinkers and travelers um, are completely uh, part of an equestrian culture. So, you know, sometimes really marginal people may be associated with horses too. It's unfortunate in a way that the uh, exporting of an image of Englishness was so bound up, if you like, with uh, countryside and, and so on. I gather there are lots of prints still in India today of uh, fox-hunting squires. <laughs> you know, the image of Englishness that was exported was often of that jolly falling off, you know, in hedges and <laughs> intrepidly traveling and so on, uh, traveling across countries. Um, uh, I'm very glad that the current Tory government that they're not horse They would would be better. (laughs) They would be better governors if they were. (laughs) Better figures of government if they were. But since they're not, I think we need to look to a much more uh, heterogeneous, more varied, uh, more cross-class notion of what the English countryside is today. The English countryside is under pressure to become a theme park rather than a place of sustainable agriculture and Um, I think perhaps entering into horse culture is a way of of perhaps counteracting that and and learning to read a landscape differently. But one can only do what one can. uh, There's nothing to be done about that whole history of the English exporting images of themselves on horseback um, when that was seen to be something that could be interpreted as incredibly elite. Although... It was, of course, a misrepresentation. Just as every every representation is very likely to be a misrepresentation in some in some sense, the, the document of civilization that's also a document of barbarism, as Benjamin wrote it, uh, as uh, Frederick Jameson reminded us not so long ago. <laughs> so I think the image of, of you know the human on horseback is a bit like that. It it, it doesn't it, it has certain symbolic things attached to it, but it can be interpreted differently, including um, by turning the image upside down.
1: Um, yeah, and what about, well, this is hopefully the last question, we won't keep you anymore. Um, what about the impact of the of hunting ban on, well, I don't know, people involved in the hunting industry?
2: I mean, what has been the impact? Well, the, the effect of the ban has been to... Um, force the hunting community to think about their public relations, a great (laughs) deal. And I won't say the ban is entirely a PR exercise, but to some extent it is. (laughs) So that in fact many hunts do not pursue actual foxes, they pursue what's called a drag, a human, uh, Soak some sort of sock or other thing, you know, in uh, various scents that will entice the hounds to follow. And then the human goes out and lays this trail, either with a quad bike or with an a athletic runner, someone training for a marathon or whatever. And then the hunt follows that. And that's acceptable because there's no cruelty to foxes involved. Often the uh, scent is obtained from a roadkill fox. However, in some areas of the country where it's very difficult for people not mounted or people who don't know the country to follow, there is still actual fox hunting going on, on some of the high moors, for example, where there are no cameras and no saboteurs um, who can really monitor what's going on. So it really depends on where you are in the country as to whether the ban is being strictly adhered to. The effect, I think, has been to make uh, where these uh, particular drag kinds of hunting, plot, um, where, where that's going on, to make the activity far less about the kinds of natural historical knowledge, or ecological knowledge, that once upon a time were part of being interested in hunting, mm. and making it much more um, a leisure activity... Hardly a sport, really, but more just a, a kind of adrenaline sort of rush activity. So that the culture of hunting, the poetry of hunting, the literature of hunting, the music of hunting, many of these things are soon to dying away as more and more people who don't really know the history of hunting get involved and they pick this up as something that socially you know still has a bit of cachet attached to it but is far more um, about the activity of going across country and jumping things following what isn't really hound hunting anymore if you like it's a kind of um, postmodern simulacra. <laughs> and I don't see the Tory government at the moment doing anything to change the ban. I think they think that would be very politically unpopular. They said before they got elected that they would repeal the ban when they came in, but there's been no debate about that whatsoever. So people are carrying on. They're either flouting the ban if they can get away with it, or they're adhering to it and grumbling. <laughs> I've been following that. uh, All this
1: talk of homes and Englishness is making me really homesick. So, before I start beeping with homesickness, I'm going to have to sign off now. How? But uh, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network, and it's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much, Tara. It's been a pleasure. So, Fox. A
0: lovely discussion about a kind of history that is rarely written. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.